Amen. Well, do take your copies of God's Word now and turn with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 3. Uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 3, where we'll just be looking at the first six verses this morning. Luke, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Luke, chapter 3, reading from verse 1. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Eritrea and Traconitus and uh, Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness." And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we come now to the study of Holy Scripture, we pray for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We ask that He would help us to properly uh, read it and mark it and learn it and inwardly digest it, that we would behold Your glory as they are revealed in these verses, and all for Jesus' sake. Amen. When the Assyrian army was sweeping down from the north in the days of King Hezekiah, threatening to destroy Judah and Jerusalem, before they arrived at the gates of Jerusalem, a, a retinue of men were sent before them into the capital city, and chief among them was the Rabshakeh. This man whose name means the, the chief cupbearer of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. The Rabshakeh had come as a forerunner, as a herald of the coming invasion. And in 2 Kings chapter 18, we hear the words that he preached, first to Hezekiah and then to the inhabitants of the city. We're told the Rabshakeh stood and he called out, in a loud voice, in the language of Judah. Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. And do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. As the Assyrian army made its way down from the north, the Rabshakeh came as its forerunner, 
Sennacherib came to, to threaten Jerusalem and, and threaten Judah. The Rabshakeh came as, as his forerunner, as his herald. He came calling to Hezekiah, calling to the people of Jerusalem to lay down their weapons of rebellion and simply yield to the greater power of Sennacherib. The message, resistance is futile, destruction is certain, and the only way of escape is to cast themselves upon the mercy of Sennacherib. As Luke here introduces us to the public ministry of John, he quotes from Isaiah 40 to give us an interpretive framework for understanding John's ministry. And we need it, don't we? John is an enigmatic character. We've had a, a wonderful introduction to him in, in chapter 1, those rich and evocative scenes where his role as the herald of the Messiah comes to the fore. And we somewhat mysteriously left him at the end of chapter 1, where we're told simply that John grew and became strong in spirit and was in the wilderness until his public appearance to Israel. It's all a little mysterious. And so, when Luke wants to give us a lens through which we are to properly understand his ministry, he quotes from Isaiah 40, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make His path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. But the thing that, that we have to have in mind, the thing that we need to understand as we, as we read those verses, is that to Isaiah's readers sitting in exile, and even to Luke's first-century Jewish readers, that was a promise of a new Rabshakeh, the, the promise of, a, of, of now a righteous Rabshakeh, or, or we could say a contra-Rabshakeh, a herald who comes not threatening the destruction of God's people, but a herald who comes threatening the destruction of all those who would oppose God's people. As they, as they heard those words, as they, as they read those words, what they had in mind was, was that image, that image of a man coming and, and warning of sure and certain destruction that the Messiah will bring upon the enemies of His people. And you understand that understanding of Isaiah 40 was not just born of their trauma. Now, it, it, it was in a sense, right, we can understand that for the exiles, there, there had to be that desire to see returned on their enemies' heads what they themselves had received. But, but more than just being born of the trauma of their experience, that interpretation of, of Isaiah's words fits with the way in which redemption is described throughout the Old Testament. Right? Last week, as we saw Jesus 
coming to Jerusalem for the Passover. You remember we said that that, that whole imagery of the exile from Egypt that, that, that leads and feeds into our understanding of the Passover, it's all fundamentally framed in the imagery of the clash of the kingdoms, right? The war of the worlds. That's what's happening in, in Egypt as, as Pharaoh and, and Moses face off against one another. You have got Yahweh or Jehovah, the God King of Israel on the one side, and then you've got Pharaoh, the, the so-called God King of Egypt on the, on the other side. And those, those plagues are this series of battles and a, and a war of the worlds, in the, in the war of the gods, who will come out supreme. But of course, it's not just there. Throughout the Old Testament, the arrival of the Messiah is depicted in similarly powerful terms. The Messiah is depicted as a king who will win a definitive victory over his enemies and the enemies of his people. We see it, don't we, in passages like Psalm 37. Psalm 37, verse 12, the wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. That's, that's war of the worlds, isn't it? The, the, the righteous, the, the powerful in, in this world coming against the church because the church seems so weak, so, so frail, but the Lord sitting in heaven laughing at, at the futile hubris of created men knowing that a day of judgment is coming and they will all stand before His throne. Psalm 37 picks up, doesn't it, on the imagery of Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords away from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to him in his, in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. It's the clash of the kingdoms, the fight between the sons of the woman and the sons of the serpent. You remember that great partitioning of humanity in Genesis 3.15. We, we love that verse, don't we? If you are Presbyterian if you are covenantal in your theology, you, you love Genesis 3.15. It is, it is the proto-evangelion, the first gospel preached to a, a newly fallen world, or as the, the Dutch theologians called it, the mother promise of, of Scripture. As, as somebody has said, everything in your Bibles is a footnote to Genesis 3.15. It's glorious. The, the promise that a son of the woman would be born and that he would crush the head of the serpent, the promise that evil, the evil which had now come in with such force, turning creation on its head and bringing discord and disharmony and conflict, bringing this living death now into the world, the promise in Genesis 3.15, gloriously, that it's, that it's all finite. As devastating as it is, it's It's limited. As if, as if as soon as the fall happened, a great hourglass was overturned with that promise. And, 
And with every passing minute, the end of evil coming ever closer. But you remember the first half of that verse. What was the, what was the first part of that gospel? What was the first part of that good news? God speaking to the serpent, to the devil, He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And that, that's amazing. Because, because at that moment, everybody's on the devil's side. Adam and Eve have both rejected the lordship of God. Adam and Eve have both put their lot in with the devil and his rebellion against the throne of heaven. But you hear the promise, God will not let it remain so. But in His sovereign power, He will establish an enmity. He would sovereignly choose some of humanity to be His own, plucking them out from the fate that our first parents condemned us to and making us the glorious heirs of the Redeemer. It's magnificent. And from that point on, the story is a clash of kingdoms. The story of the sons of the woman versus the sons of the serpent. The story of two tribes going to war, the wrestling between, between good and evil, light and, and darkness. And as the story progresses, the picture that we are given of the promised Redeemer is a picture of a mighty king who will crush his enemies. Ezekiel 20, verse 33, as I live, declares the Lord, surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I will be king over you. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. It is literally an awesome picture. Or, or we're better served, I think, probably to use the the older term, the more archaic term. It's an awful picture, full of awe, a, a picture that, that should make us fear the living God, right? Do you remember how the author of Hebrews puts it? Hebrews 10, 31. It is a, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Or as the New American Standard puts it, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The schematic of salvation in the Old Testament is drawn up in these great militaristic terms. And so when Isaiah tells his readers that a herald shall come, that a forerunner shall come, and that He shall prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. That's what they have in mind, the, the warning of looming destruction for those who are not on the Lord's side, the warning of imminent judgment upon those who oppose the Lord and His anointed. And so, it's somewhat surprising how Luke applies that passage to John's ministry especially having opened the scene with a list of power brokers who have set themselves up against God and against His people. The list that, that, John, that, that Luke uses to, to open the scene, it's, it's not arbitrary. Right? There's no wasted words in, 
in Scripture. And, and just like the mention of Caesar Augustus and Quirinius at the beginning of chapter 2, this list is not just here to, to set the date for us. Now, it does, right? It, it helps us understand just when in history these events were taking place, real men, real events at a real time in a real place in history. But, but Luke isn't just doing it to give us a, a, a chronological anchor, right? These men are men who are in positions of power and influence, but who are using that for their own ends, who are using their positions of power and influence to build their own kingdoms. We could say to set themselves up even as little gods, men who have set themselves over and against the kingdom of God. One commentator said that all the several names given here evoke wickedness and intrigue. Luke's not just giving us a, a chronological marker. He's, 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 he's setting the tone for us. This is, this is a world of wickedness and, and intrigue, and then, and then we get it all the more, don't we, when we read that there's two high priests. There's not supposed to be two high priests. There's only supposed to be one, but, but here we have Caiaphas, the actual high priest, and then, and then Annas, his father-in-law, who still retained the title and the dignity and even the power of the office of high priest. This same commentator described their relationship as serpentine nepotism. That's the milieu that Luke sets up for us as we enter the story. It's ripe, surely, for the arrival of God's prophet in fulfillment of Isaiah 40 to declare that the time was at hand and, and judgment was imminent and Psalm 2 would be fulfilled and the laugh of the Lord against the futility of His enemies would be turned into that, into that wrath of God against them. But John doesn't come and stand in Jerusalem as a new Rabshakeh. He doesn't go to Caesarea Mortimer, the political epicenter of Judea. He doesn't go to the temple and confront the spiritual abuses. Instead, he comes to the region around the Jordan, and he preaches. He comes to the wilderness. When we read the passage that Luke quotes in Isaiah 40, that wilderness language could just be a metaphor, couldn't it? Since entry into the world corrupted the, the good, even very good world that God had made. It's, it's the tragedy, even in the curse that God brings to bear on humanity, that that good garden, so plentiful, so free in its fruits, now a place of thorns and thistles, a place in which man would have to fight in order to get it to yield its, its produce. That garden turned into a, a wilderness. What is a wilderness? It's an anti-garden. Instead of a place of fruit in abundance, a place of, of, of desolation where life can only be sustained by the sweat of the, the brow. The, the voice of one crying in the wilderness could just be a metaphor to describe the arrival of the Genesis 3.15 Savior, come into this world corrupted and groaning under the weight of sin. Come into this present spiritual wilderness to redeem His people. But we find John literally in a wilderness. 
an enacted prophecy, perhaps. But, but in that wilderness, his target audience is not the power brokers at the beginning of the chapter, but rather John's audience is any and all who will fall within the sound of his voice. And the message that he proclaims is not one of kingdom overthrow or imminent judgment, but rather John's message is a call to personal repentance. And the thing we have to understand about this is that this is not just unexpected. Uh, this, is, this is scandalous. Now, it doesn't, it doesn't hit us like that because we're so used to it. Right? We even have grown accustomed to calling John, John the Baptist, even though as Presbyterians we maintain that John was not actually a Baptist. Right? To the first century Jews to whom, his preaching, to whom he was preaching, and, and to these first century Jews that he, was, that he was bringing to his baptism, this message was coming with a shocking force and even a sense of outrage. What we have to understand in order to grasp the weight of the scene is that John is inviting his readers, his Jewish hearers, to what is essentially a Gentile conversion ritual. Now, the inclusion of the Gentiles is not a New Testament concept. Right all the way through, there was an invitation for the nations to come in and worship Israel's God. We don't have time to recite it all just now, but, but you know you know Nineveh and Jonah's ministry. I ministry to Gentiles and bid them come and worship Israel's God. You know Rahab, a, 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 a Gentile who came into Israel by faith. You, you know the story of the, of the Exodus and the, and the provisions within the, within the Passover regulations for what it would entail for a Gentile to come and, and take the Passover. And you, and you know that, that in, the, in the Exodus, we're told that a mixed multitude came out of Egypt, that, that group that crossed the Red Sea and went through the wilderness, not just made up of those who were descendants of Abraham, but even Egyptians along with them who would come and put them their faith in, in Israel's God. Gentile inclusion is not a, a New Testament idea. There's provisions always for them coming in, the sojourner to come and camp with Israel. But by the first century, there had grown this ceremony around it. The, the Gentiles coming into Judaism, converting to Judaism, were required to undergo a ceremonial washing, a baptism removing symbolically, ceremonially, their impurity. And that's what John's now inviting the Jews to do. And to, to tell Jewish people that they had to, to be baptized or repent in the same way that non-Jews did would have been startlingly offensive. Because it, it, it challenged their conceptions of of salvation. You understand, most of them thought that, that, that if they were born into a Jewish family and if they did not reject God's law, then they would be found amongst the people of God and they would be saved. But now John comes and he confronts them and he tells them that they, just as much as the Gentiles, have to reckon with their own sin and their guilt before God. 
As John goes out to the region around the, the Jordan, the message that he, that he preaches as the herald of God is, is, is Romans 1, 2, and 3, isn't it? John's, John's message that he proclaims in the wilderness is, is to any and all would hear, hear the bad news of the gospel, that, that there is none righteous, not even one. That the Jews and Greeks both are under sin, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see what John is doing, telling his, his hearers, what, what Luke is doing, recounting this, telling us that, that our predicament is actually far deeper than we would want to believe. Our greatest problem is not our political rulers. As bad and corrupt and as wicked as they might be, and these men are bad and corrupt and as wicked as they come. And John's saying, they're not your problem. Our greatest need is, is not just for God to make our lives better. Our greatest need is not just for, for God to, to even bring us into a world where that wilderness has been brought back into a garden. Our greatest need is not external. It's not out there. Our greatest need is not concerned with other people, but rather what John is saying is that our greatest need is in, is in here. It's, it's what his father had spoken of him, wasn't it? I remember Zechariah's song in chapter 1, the, the Benedictus, having described the coming of the Savior in those Old Testament terms, having described the coming of the Savior, establishing the covenant, redeeming His people, saving them from their enemies. What is it that Zechariah said that John would do? A new child will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins. Zechariah prophesied of the ministry of his, sin, of his son. He conceived of it in these terms, in the forgiveness of sins, in these inward terms, in terms of our guilt before God. And so, as John appears, what does he confront his hearers with? Not their need for political liberation, but their need to reckon with their own guilt before God. You see, what John is confronting them with in his call to repentance, what Luke is confronting us with, is the sobering reality that in our sins, we are enemies of God and liable to His judgment. A sobering mirror is being held up to us here. We are being brought to look at ourselves in the mirror of God's law. And see just how deep our sin runs, just how dire our situation is, to see just how unrighteous we are. It's, it's hard to admit. But we know it's true, don't we? The testimony of our consciences condemns us. We all, 
Paul will say, we, we have the law written on our hearts. That remaining vestige of the image of God in whose likeness we were made. And you don't have to sit for very long to think of the the harsh and condemning words that have come out of your mouth. Most of us, I think, carry a, a memory of it. Right? There are times where we're in an argument, in a conflict, and we spend the next three, four hours coming up with all the zingers that we, that we wish we had said at the time. But the awful thing is sometimes we do think of them at the time. And they come out before we know it, and, and we can see the effect on the other person. And the thing is that that never feels as good as you think it's going to feel. You know it. You, you know the words that you have said. You know the thoughts that have crossed your mind that, that you ought not to have thought. You, you know the things that you have done, even things you've done in secret that nobody else in the world knows, but you know it. You know it's wrong. We know that we haven't lived by the golden rule, right? We all know it. Isn't it interesting? I, in Wikipedia, I, I searched up the golden rule. Pretty much every civilization in the history of the world has had a version of the golden rule. It's the law of God written on our hearts. Do unto others as you would have them do unto, unto you. Treat others as you would want to be uh, treated. It's simply another way of saying the second great commandment in all the law, isn't it? That you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Innately, we know we ought to do it, but we don't. We know, of course, ultimately, that we have not loved the Lord our God with all our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. We know that we have not loved Him with every fiber of our being, that we have not devoted ourselves to His worship and to His work. And that's what John wants us to see. John Calvin said that the, that the, mirror, that the, the, the law of God is like a, like a mirror. He says any man can convince himself that he is handsome until he goes and looks in a mirror and beholds the warts on his face. The law does the same. You convince yourself that you are good and righteous. You're at least not as bad as other people. And then you go and you look in the mirror of the law and you see just how deep your sin runs just how wicked your heart is, and it is hard to admit, and we will resist it and kick against it, but it's essential. It is essential. It is essential that we understand and come to terms with just how sinful we are, because if, if you are to grasp who Jesus is as a Savior, you have to grasp what you need to be saved from. When you become a member of the PCA, there are five membership vows that you need to take. And they begin with this very question. Do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving His displeasure and without hope, save in His sovereign mercy? Why is that question number one? Because if you don't get that right, you won't get anything else right. 
unless you understand yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving His his displeasure without any hope in this world or the next except in His sovereign mercy, unless you understand just how bad your situation in your sin is, you cannot properly understand who Jesus is or what He came to do. In order to understand who Jesus is and what He has come to do, we have to understand just how profound our need for Him is, to understand just how deep our sin runs, just how helpless we are. And that's what John wanted his hearers to understand. As he prepared the way for the coming of the Messiah, John comes and he stands and he preaches, and his goal in preaching is to correct their categories to turn his hearers away from this outward conception of salvation and turn them inward to see personally how profoundly they needed the personal work of the Savior. To turn them in to see just how deep their sin ran and just how much they needed Christ to save them, not from the Romans, but from their sin. Now, the truth is that Jesus Christ will come again. As we go through this Advent season, we're mindful that there's going to be a second Advent, that that Christ will come again, and, and when He comes again, He will come with glory. He will come as that revelation one Jesus, with with feet like burnished bronze with a face that shines like the sun, with a, with a sword coming out of his mouth. Jesus will come again, and he will come with magnificent glory. And on that day, he will bring that great and devastating judgment that will overthrow all the kings and kingdoms that have set themselves against him and his people. All that the Old Testament has foretold will come to pass, and Psalm 2 will be fulfilled, and those who have taken counsel against the Lord will face His righteous anger. But the good news of the gospel, the good news of this Advent season, is that in the mercy and the kindness and the grace of God, Jesus Christ has come into the world a first time. And He has come with an offer of free salvation for any and all who would lay hold of him. You remember how he said it to Nicodemus in in John 3. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. The bad news of the gospel is that you are a sinner, and that in your sin you stand liable to the displeasure and the judgment of God. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has come for sinners. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has come for men and women and and boys and girls just like you. And the promise of the gospel is whoever comes to Him and puts their faith in Him will be cleansed of their sin and will be saved. 
The good news of the gospel is is that in Jesus Christ, there is one in whom perfect salvation can be found. Let us pray.